Thanks, Derek, for leading us in that. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up actually the book of Esther. Let's continue a little break here that we're going to have um, in our study of 1 Samuel, the Old Testament book that we started studying in July. And so today we're going to read from Esther 4, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. Our text of study will be actually from 8 to 17. In fact, I will be covering much of the book uh, today. So Esther, so it's Old Testament is kind of hidden, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. If you find Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, so if you can find Psalms, you can kind of backtrack a little bit from there. So Esther 4, starting in verse 13 through verse 17. So please hear uh, the word of the Lord. So the scripture says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, for it was against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Join me in praying. Okay, Lord, thank you for um, this time. And Lord, I do pray for the glory of Christ. You bless the preaching of your word. And Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens up your holy word. Do pray the Spirit would be at work. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so with each passing year, this particular weekend here has become uh, more important, more significant, more uh, special to me. And it's more important, more significant, more special, and that's because of the big bow hunt we're going to be doing with the kids after the service, which, by the way, kids, I do love, and I hope that you can join me after the service for the bow hunt. But this weekend means a lot to me because it's on this weekend, 12 years ago, that Red Village Church was officially born. And Red Village Church is born because on a cold night on December 5th, uh, the church received their first members as a small group of people uh, made up mostly of college students, a young couple in their mid-20s, and a couple families in their late 20s to early 30s came together and signed our church covenant for the very first time. So through that signing of the covenant, we're committing ourselves to the Lord and to each other uh, to work together in ways where we hoped and desired the Lord might use our labors to establish Red Village Church here in Madison uh, for years to come. And even more than that, when we signed the book, we even hoped that from the humble start that we had, that God somehow might use our labors, Red Village Church, to create a ripple that over time would be a ripple that actually would make all the way to the ends of the earth itself. That all the way to the ends of the earth, the message of Jesus Christ would extend from us. Or in our language, we had the hope that God would use Red Village Church in ways that people from Madison to the ends of the earth would proclaim that the wooden cross and the empty tomb mean everything. And on that cold night, December 5th, 2010, as we came together to sign that covenant, we did so believing that God has brought us together as a community for such a time as this. And since that time, over the past 12 years, God has continued to put people into this church family who likewise have signed that same church covenant to become members with this community also believing that the Lord put them into Red Village Church for such a time as this. 
Now today as we gather together, our text to study is the famous for such a time as this passage that I read for you from the book of Esther. This morning as we work through that passage, the details surrounding that, I do want to acknowledge up front that that passage is part of a unique work of God. Uh, the story of Esther is a unique story. Uh, it's a unique part of redemptive history as God was uniquely keeping his promises of a deliverer to come uh, for his people through the Christ. So, so this morning I do want to be a little cautious here. Cautious not to take this passage of this unique work of Esther and then to too quickly apply it to us here at Red Village Church. However, that being said, we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a church, the scriptures tells us, that was bought by the blood of Christ himself. And as a church, we are part of God's redemptive plan, his plan to extend his salvation to the ends of the earth. So even though we work through a unique story here in Esther that we want to keep unique, I also want to be cautious that we don't undervalue what the Lord has done here. Undervalue the significance for all the different such a times as this that we have had in the past 12 years as a church family. Also, want to underestimate or undervalue all of the such a time as this times that we hope to have in the future. So this morning, I'm going to tell us the story of Esther. So we're not Esther in terms of uniqueness, but yet we are part of God's perfect, unique plan to save His people from their sins through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was born on Christmas morn, who died on Good Friday, only to rise again on Easter morn. Now, before we work through the text that I read for you, let me first set some of the context for you, just to help us understand the significance of the passage I read to you from Esther 4. Okay, so the book of Esther, some of you maybe are not familiar with this book. Okay, this is a book that was written around somewhere around like maybe 460, 480, somewhere in there, B.C. It was set in the Persian Empire during the reign of a king named Ejuarius. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see the kingdom is actually a massive kingdom at this time of the, this letter. Uh, one that extended from India to Ethiopia. The text even tells us that 127 provinces in it. And as Ezra's the king, reigned over the uh, land, we see in chapter 1 that he was going to throw himself like a huge party in his honor. And as he was throwing this party, he had the guys in the palace with him and his wife, the queen, uh, a beautiful woman named Vesti, uh, was entertaining a group of women in a different part of the palace. And in chapter 1, as this great feast, this great party was going on, uh, the king seemingly had like too much to drink. And in his drunkenness, he decided he wanted to put like, his trophy wife on display in front of the rest of the group he's entertaining. So he sent message to the section of the palace where Vasti was entertaining her guest, which is a message for the queen to stop what she was doing and to come and be by the king's side. However, we see in chapter 1 that as this message came to the queen, she actually refused to come. Now, we don't know why she refused to come. Perhaps she was like engaged in her own party and didn't want to leave a good conversation she was having. Uh, perhaps she was frustrated the king was, was drunk and wanted to simply like parade her in front of his buddies. The text doesn't necessarily tell us why she refused to come. We just see that she rejected the king's command. And this action was culturally incredibly offensive. No one, not even the queen, was refused to come to the king when he called. So this action of the queen refusing to come, this caused a real stir throughout the palace, where some of the officials came to the king to insist that he must do something about it, uh, telling the king if he did not deal with the queen, there would be uh, word would get out and women all over the kingdom would follow suit and hold uh, their husbands in contempt. And even more so, the officials told the king that it was actually against the law of the day 
to refuse to come into the king's presence when called. And if he did not deal with the queen as they advised him, all kinds of laws certainly would happen all over the kingdom. So in chapter 1, in the context, the king came to the conclusion that Vasti would be banned from the court forever. Right? A strict, harsh judgment for breaking his command. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see that Vasti was banned. And as she was banned, we see the king actually started to get a little lonely. Uh, he missed not having a queen by his side. So he just started to look for a, a new wife. And as the king began to search for a new wife, he, he, in short, throws like a beauty contest. A contest that was so elaborate, it took each woman who was placed within the contest an entire year to prepare. So in the story, as it determined the king would seek a wife through this contest, whoever the most physically beautiful in the land uh, would be his. So all the beautiful women brought before him. And as beauty search is coming to a conclusion, it's a time for the king to make his selection. He picked a young woman, probably pretty young, maybe mid to late teens, maybe maybe early 20s, but most likely in her teens, a young woman named Esther to be his queen. And as this young woman became queen, uh, we see in chapter 2 that her background wasn't necessarily one of you would pick for a queen. Uh, she was an orphan. Uh, both her parents had passed away. Uh, she was raised by her uncle, a man named uh, Mordecai, uh, who, based on the context of this book, uh, does seem like he's a pretty good, righteous man. And we see in chapter 2 that both Mordecai and Esther were, were Jews who were living in exile in the Perman, uh, Persian Empire. Okay, so not a, a likely character to be queen. Okay, now between Esther becoming queen and our text today, a couple big things happened. Uh, one of which was Mordecai actually saved the king's life by exposing an uh, attempted assassination. Uh, the other, more, uh, more significant to help us understand the context of our passage today, revolved uh, around an evil man named Haman, uh, who had a personal grudge against a man named Mordecai, um, or uh, Uncle Mordecai, I should say. And he had this grudge because Mordecai refused to pay homage towards Haman. And this grudge that Haman had against Mordecai raged like an inferno in Haman's heart. And Haman decided he not only wanted to wipe out Mordecai, but he wanted to warp, wipe, uh, wipe out Mordecai's people as well, uh, the Jews. So in the context, in chapter 3, Haman, who was an advisor of the king, was able to bend the king's ear in such a way that he was able to trick and convince the king to make a decree to wipe out the Jewish people from the kingdom. So by decree, it became legal and even advantageous for the people of the land to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews whether they be young or old, women or children, and they were to go and do this incredible mass murder on the 13th day of the 12th month. And after the mass murder concluded, this wicked, evil law even prevented, or even allowed the people of the land to then plunder all of the Jews' um, goods that were left behind. So you see in chapter 3, start of chapter 4, where our text is from, we see that Uncle Mordecai is now made aware of this evil decree that's going forward. And as he made aware of this evil decree, he understands that they are in grave danger. And so naturally, he's like completely cut to the heart. Uh, he's broken for himself and for the Jewish people. So in our text today, Uncle Mordecai was trying to determine what he might be able to do to save the people, to protect them from the evil that is at hand. And as he's trying to figure out how to save the people, as he racked his brain, he came to the conclusion the only hope was for his niece, the young queen, Esther, to plead on behalf of the Jews to the king. Okay, so with all that, running in the context of our passage, look back with me starting at verse 8. If you want to take your eyes there. If you have a Bible with you, just keep it open. We're going to walk through verse by verse. 
So this is where we see Uncle Mordecai as he got to hand on the copy of the written decree that was issued in the city of Susa, which is where the king's royal throne was, uh, throne was located. And as Uncle Mordecai was able to get his hands on the copy to see the decree that evil Haman was able to pass through, uh, we see that he's, just like I mentioned, he's, he's broken. Right? This is an unbelievable evil act. And in verse 8, as he gets this decree, uh, we see that he now changes it and gives it to a man named Hatchach with instructions that this man was to take the decree and now show it to Esther. We do see in chapter 4, actually was, uh, at the start of chapter 4, was aware of this decree. In our text, as a messenger was to make his way back to Esther, Mordecai wanted the messenger to explain to her everything that took place to ensure that Esther indeed heard all of the gruesome details concerning this evil law. And as Etel, uh, Esther heard the details of, the, of this law, we see that Mordecai was sending her a command, some instructions, which is a command in the text that she was to use her status as a queen to go and run to the king and beg for favor, uh, to plead with the king on behalf of her people. I'll say it again. Uncle Mordecai understood the situation. And the best that he could tell, the only hope, was for Esther to effectively plead with the king with the hope that the king might hear and give mercy. Verse 9, particularized there. So the messenger, as he got instructions from Mordecai, we see that he went and he found Esther. Uh, we see he delivered the message to her. And as the message came to Esther, uh, she understood it. Like she understands the significance of what's happening. So we see she sent a message back uh, to, uh, to her uncle, uh, a message from herself. Verse 11. I'm going to take your eyes there, verse 11. Uncle, I do understand the situation. I understand what you're asking me to do from the text, but I have to ask you, do you yourself know what you're asking of me? Uncle, do you understand that of all of the king's servants, of all people throughout all 127 provinces, understand that not one man, not one woman, no one in the entire kingdom, not even me, the queen, is just able to like stroll into the king's court and to engage in conversation with him. Uncle, understand, no one is able to approach the king unless they are called by him. In fact, in this message back to Uncle Mordecai, Uncle, do you understand? There's even a book on, a law on the book, that if anyone approaches the king without being summoned, that that person might actually be put to death. That is, unless the king shows mercy by holding out the golden scepter. So yes, as I receive this message from you, yes, I do understand, Uncle, what you are asking of me. Yes, I understand the gravity of the situation, but do you understand? Do you understand what you are commanding me to do? Do you understand what you're asking of me could result in my death? I also see the ad for clarity in the text for Uncle Mordecai. If you think that I'm just like hanging out in the court every day, where every day I have plenty of opportunity to talk with him and plead on our behalf. Understand, this is not how this works. As for me, I have not been called into the king's presence in 30 days. It's been a month since I have been there. So you ask me just to stroll inside without being called and then tell him about this decree that he did that was wrong and that he should change it. Uncle Mordecai, understand, you're sending me into a death sentence. So that message, those details in the text, now Esther sends the message back to Mordecai. So verse 12, Mordecai receives a message. And verse 13, as Mordecai was given the message, 
as he was questioned by Esther, if he understood what he was asking of her. Now he responds back to his niece. Esther, honey, I do actually understand what I'm asking of you. I, I understand this is heavy. This is a difficult ask. I, I understand that even you can't like waltz into the king's court without being called. I understand that even you approaching him without being called could be a death sentence for you. Esther, I don't want to minimize any of your thoughts, any of your concerns. Trust me, if there was any other way, we would do it. But Esther, you have to understand that by this decree, you're already under a death sentence. You already are under this curse. So please, Esther, don't think to yourself that even in the king's palace that you'll escape this decree any more than the rest of us. Esther, there's no queen exception in this decree. They will come for you as well. So unless this decree is somehow changed, death will be your fate. Verse 14, Esther, for if you are silent at this time, if you don't heed to my counsel, yes, I do trust the Lord somehow raised someone else from this place. I trust the Lord indeed will bring a deliverer to his people. So I am trusting the Lord. He will keep his promises to us. His redemption will go forward. But Esther, if you are disobedient here, if you are not a steward of the position that you've been given as queen, as hard as the stewardship may be, I also trust that you, your father's house, will perish as judgment against you. So yes, Esther, no doubt, God can, God will make a way, God will keep his promise, he will deliver his people. Amen. But if you do not walk in faith, if you are disobedient, that deliverance will not be yours to enjoy. In fact, Esther, honey, as you consider all this, as you think back to God placing you to be the queen, this incredible position that you're in, consider what if, in the good, providential hand of God, that whether or not you've come into this place, into this kingdom, to be used by God, for such a time as this. Verse 15. As the message makes its way back to Queen Esther, her heart is fully cut. It's cut in very real, personal ways. She understood the important, significant opportunity in front of her. So one last trading of message with her uncle. We see her count the cost. She decides by faith that she's going to do what was set before her. And she was going to trust in the Lord through it all. And as she made this sober decision, this really life and death situation, she asked her uncle, Uncle, please go to all the Jews in the city and let them know what I'm about to do. Please ask them, plead with them to hold a fast and prayer for me. And she understands she can't do this on her own. She needs the Lord's strength to be with her. She asked Mordecai, please have everyone fast, pray on my behalf. Please have them not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Lord, I, I, uncle, I need the Lord's strength. And I know that he provides for the prayers of his people. So tell them, fast, pray. And I'm going to do the same thing with my people here. I'm going to have all the young women who attended me do the same thing with me. Text and story. 
after three days of urgent fasting and praying on behalf of the queen, she agrees that yes, by faith, I will risk it all. I will go into the king's court, though it's against the law. And indeed, I will plead for our people. And I'm doing this, Uncle Mordecai, understanding that I might not make it out alive. But yes, I will go. And if I perish, I perish. She, she fully understood what was before her. Fully counted the cost to follow after the Lord. Finally, our text ends, verse 17. You see, Mordecai does go to the Jews of the city to pass on Esther's prayer request. And that's how the text uh, ends this morning. Okay, now for those of you who don't know the rest of the story, I'm not going to leave you like hanging here. Like maybe like the way TV shows sometimes do that, as they head to commercial break or even like to the following week before you get to see the conclusion. So I'll, t I'll tell you what happens from here. Okay. So in chapter 5, you see that Esther puts on a royal robe and she goes into the inner court of the king. And she goes in, she stands in the opposite entrance where the king was. And as she's standing there, the king actually spots her. And when he spots her, he's, he's actually excited to see his queen. So rather than calling for her death, he extends grace. He extends the golden scepter, which allows Esther to come into his presence. And as she approaches the king, it seems like the king could tell that something is wrong. So the king asks the queen, like, what's, what's wrong? What's, what's your request? Queen Esther, you know that I love you. In fact, just say the word, and I'll give you even up to half of my kingdom. Right, this is an incredible, generous gift that he is willing to offer her. But in the story, he's, Esther is actually not distracted by that offer. She didn't start to, start to think about what might be if she had half the kingdom. Rather, she stays focused on the task at hand. So she makes a kind of a strange request to the king. And Esther asks for evil Haman to come into the court so they can have a feast. And at this feast, then she would tell the king which was so heavy on her heart. So in the story, the king hears the request for evil Haman. He doesn't question the request. Rather, he agrees to the request. And Esther goes to work to try to get everything in place uh, for this great feast. Now, as she's doing this, Haman was made aware of the feast that he was going to have the king and the queen. So as you can imagine, even Haman gets really excited. And he starts to have expectations that surely the king and the queen are going to throw a feast in his honor because of how great he was. And as this excitement is like welling up in his heart, it seems like he gets even more empowered to take out his hate and aggression on Mordecai. So as Queen Esther prepared for the feast, Haman also went to work. And he was preparing a gallows by which he was going to hang Mordecai. Well, as the night came, as the king was falling asleep or trying to fall asleep, he remembers back to a time where there was an attempt on his life that was thwarted by someone in the, the kingdom. He just couldn't remember who it was, like who it was who stepped in to save his life. So he calls over the official recorder to have him look through the books to see who it was who saved his life. And he finds out it was, it was Mordecai. And as the king reflected back on that time, he realized, like, you know, we never did anything for Mordecai. We never honored him for his incredible service to me, the king. So the king decides, I'm going to call over Haman. Haman, I have something important I want you to do. Uh, a few years back, there was a great service in the land that was not recognized. And a great service was done by a man named Mordecai who saved my life. So I'm going to put you in charge of the pay, uh, planning, uh, party planning committee. I want you to plan to throw a huge 
party in Mordecai's honor. And what I want you to do is actually have like a parade go out through the whole, uh, entire city to honor Mordecai. Can you imagine what this did for old bitter Haman? Well, for Haman, as he's told to organize the party for the person he hate the most, if that wasn't bad enough, things actually get much, much worse for him in the story. Because at the party, as Esther sat king and Haman down, she does everything Uncle Mordecai asked her to do. And she lets it all out. And she appeals to the king on behalf of her people. She tells the king about the evil decree that went out. Uh, she lets the king know how he was tricked into signing the decree. Uh, she let the king know that the decree would actually even affect her because she was a Jew. And as Esther is making this appeal on behalf of her people for the king, now the king's the one. He's like has his heart touched. And his heart is touched with anger. And he demands to know who it was who tricked him to put this evil decree in place. Well, can you imagine Haman here as this conversation was taking place in his presence? And we can just like see his jaw like hit the floor. And you can see him try to like slither his way out of uh, the palace. Well, as the king was made aware of this, as he is demanding to know who tricks him, the queen then points over and said it was Haman. Even evil Haman did this. And the story is the king's eyes are open to what Haman did. The king puts forth a new order of judgment, uh, an order to declare that Haman would be hanged. So in this story, in divine irony, as Haman is being taken away to hang, he was taken to the very gallows that he made for Mordecai. Now, even though Haman is taken care of, there's still a huge problem for Esther and for the Jewish people, namely the evil decree that this man put into motion to kill the Jews. So this decree is still out there. It's still on the books. And because of the law of the land, it's not as simple as like writing a new decree to take it off the books. So the king, his council, put together a new decree that was distributed quickly through the land, which is a decree that empowered the Jews to be able to defend themselves, which they see they did in chapter 9. And as they defended themselves, God was at work to once again save his people, to once again keep his plan in place of redemption. So once again, God worked among his people as they did hard things, as they continued to wait for the anticipated coming of their Messiah which would be the most significant such a time as this, the coming of the, of the Messiah, which we know happened on the first Christmas morn, when the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to rescue his people from their sins, Amen. which he did by dying on the cross in our place to take on all evil, where he became cursed for us, where he died only to rise again, so that through Jesus Christ, who came at the perfect such a time as this, that through him now we can plead for mercy, and he's given us the promise that all who plead for mercy, who come to him by faith, who count the cost and follow him, mercy will be given, Amen. and he will save them from their sins. So that's the end of the story. Okay, now as I begin to close, I want to share just a few organized thoughts concerning this unique work of God in the story of Esther. And after we go through this unique work of God in the story, I do want to conclude by taking what we see in the story back to us uh, to hopefully help us as a church to think back over the, our story of the last 12 years. And we look back and think how God was at work here. And as we look back, let's also look ahead. Use the story to look ahead, to anticipate how God might continue to write the story here at Red Village for years to come. As I share these thoughts to you from the book of Esther, I wanted to put them under the banner of how God was at work. 
It's an incredible story, just how God was at work uh, in this uh, story of Esther. So first, I just have a handful of things for us as we think through this story. So first, God was at work in a seemingly impossible situation. I mean, I mean think how impossible this must have felt for Mordecai, uh, for the Jewish people as a whole. I mean, this is impossible. They're just given a death sentence by one of the most powerful kings, one of the most powerful nations in the world. And then in this impossible situation, the people have to put their hope in, like, in a very unexpected person. Right? This young woman, you know, maybe at this point, as they're putting their hope in her, maybe at this point she's maybe in her early 20s. Uh, this is like an orphan, you know, not this great lineage that we might think of when we think of Old Testament characters. So yes, she was queen, but she was a queen who also wasn't called in the king's presence in a month. So humanly speaking, like this is impossible here. This is incredibly impossible to think how in the world God can work through this. In fact, if there had been a strategic plan to draw up to get out of this impossible situation, this wouldn't have been it. Yeah, in the story, in this impossible situation, through this unexpected person, God is at work. Right? He did the impossible to keep his promise yet again to his people. Second, God is at work through the prayers of his people which, by the way, is why we think the various prayers that, our prayers that we offer up as a church are so important. Like all the pre-service prayers, all the prayers that we offer in the service as a whole. Right? These matter. They're not just like throw-ins, like help out with transitions, right? like help get the band on and off the platform. No, these prayers, they matter. God is at work through prayers right? in the story. As Esther is about to dive into this impossibly hard situation, what did she do? She called for fasting, for prayer, and through the power of prayer, God who makes all things possible was at work. Let's not undervalue the significance of prayer. Scripture is clear. God uses prayers in real powerful ways as he's at work to put his glory on display. Third, in the story, God was at work through his people who take up their cross and follow after him. That's Esther in this passage here. She literally was given a death sentence to go into the king's palace without being called. This, this could have costed her life, literally. Right? There's no hyperbole in saying that. Like She could have died. Her life physically could have been taken from her. Yet we see here in the text, take up her cross, follow after the Lord, even saying, if I perish, I perish. Friends, that's the means by which God worked in this passage through his servant, Esther, taking up her cross and following after the Lord. Now, we talked about this a few different points in our study of 1 Samuel. I mean, think about it. In this story, God could have just snapped his fingers and the decree could have went away. He could have used a host of heavenly angels to come fight for his people. He could have done so many different things, but what did he use? What did he choose to work through? the most common means by which seems he chooses to work biblically. He worked through his people who counted the cost, who picked up the cross, who by faith followed and obeyed him. Fourth, God was at work in this story through incredible providence. Right, that's the story of Esther in a nutshell. Right, as God was working on his plan to keep the promise of Messiah to come, he providentially put this young woman 
into the place of providence, to providentially use her to plead on behalf of his people. Mordecai, he's right. God placed Esther in the providential right place for such a time as this. Now, I keep saying, no doubt, this is a unique story. That being said, how God was at work in the story of Esther, I can't help but see parallels to how God has been at work in the last 12 years of Red Village Church. Now, if I could be a little vulnerable here, it did feel impossible for this work to get off the ground. And nothing against the first group who signed the covenant, which I was one of. A handful of college kids, a couple in their early 20s, two couples, late 20s, early 30s. Not necessarily a dream team you draw up for a strategic start. Then over the years, right, our church has been incredibly transient. Right? We've had people always coming and going. And again, that's not like a strategic plan for a church like ours that's hoping to be here for a long time. Yet, this morning I stand before you, and here we are. Amen. Right? We're still here. We're still here. Because every year God has continued to be at work among us. And he's continued to faithfully bring people into the church family, including many of you. In addition, as a church, from the first day, we hoped and desired to be a praying church. It's actually part of the covenant that we signed, that we'll consistently pray for the members and leaders of Red Village Church. Right, prayer, we want this to be part of like a normal rhythm of our small groups where there's time to pray. Uh, every year we set a time, uh, the first week of the year, simply to pray. As mentioned, we have like pre-service prayer times. We offer our prayers throughout the service. And over 12 years, God has been faithful to answer our prayers, to do sweet things in our church family. Keep going. As a church, over 12 years, there have been many different calls for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus, whether it be through serving the church and all the different needs that we have, whether it be through caring for one another, whether by being generous with finances, whether being bold to invite people to follow Christ and join our work. There's been many calls to sacrifice, many calls to take up your cross. Right, to get here, this wasn't always easy. There's been a lot of sacrifices made over 12 years, yet God has been at work. To go a little further, over the past 12 years, when the first membership book was first signed and has continued to be signed, there has been a belief and a trust that God has providentially placed us in Red Village Church for such a time as this. So we, we don't believe that we're here by like accident, happenstance, or chance. But we believe it's been the providential hand of God who has brought us together, Amen. who has kept us together, who has kept us together through all the various such a times as this that we've had as a church family. And somehow, in God's grace and his incredible wisdom, over the last 12 years, for whatever his reasons, for whatever his purpose, God has chosen to work here in ways that the message of Jesus, that the wooden cross, the empty tomb, and everything, has made its way from us to the very ends of the earth itself. It seems impossible. If you continue to see, the Lord raise up, send out laborers, into his harvest from our little church family. And by the way, 
Robert Smith, who's one of our church planning interns. So his church in Tennessee, Grace Fellowship, today they celebrate their first uh, year of the anniversary where they signed a covenant very similar to ours. And he's using us to advance his plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. He doesn't need us, right? He could use however he wanted to use to ex extend his salvation to the ends of the earth. Yet, one of the great evidence of grace that we have had is that he's still choosing to work among us in this unique way. So no, we're not the story of Esther. But as a church, we have much to be grateful for. Amen. We have much to be thankful for for how God has been work among us. To work in ways in 12 years ago, like none of us would have ever imagined. So I'll leave this as I close. I just want to speak to three types of people that are here this morning, and then, then we'll close. So first, I, I want to speak just real briefly to our members that are here. We want to recognize that at this time, they get to this point here, like it, it has been hard work at times. Uh, this work at times has been discouraging perhaps maybe even a little monotonous, where maybe we might be tempted to think that maybe this labor is just simply in vain. So this morning, let me encourage you to actually remember back, to remember, reflect how God has been at work here, not just here in Madison, but as mentioned, all the way to the ends of the earth through Red Village Church. And let me encourage you, based on the authority of Scripture, within your labors for Jesus, they're not in vain. They haven't been in vain. And in that encouragement, let me further encourage you to not give up. To don't grow weary in whatever good that you have been doing in the church family. Trust that not only has God placed you in the family whenever it was, whether it's 12 years ago, or for those who actually became members just a few weeks ago, trust that not only he placed you for such a time as this, but trust that he actually has placed you for continued such a time as this that we hope are still yet to come. Second, for those who are here who are maybe thinking about membership, this morning, I want to just invite you to make that commitment and to officially join us in this work here. To join those who have gone before you, who have believed that God has placed them for such a time as this in Red Village Church, and to, to join them, to believe that, you know what? God has placed me here, my family here, for such a time as this. And so we, we love receiving new members. We do. We would love to receive you, your gifts, your service, your sacrifice with the hopes that we might continue to see this work continue to go forward. Third, for those who are here who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, can I just ask you to consider that perhaps maybe the reason why you're here this morning is for such a time as this, so that today, that you would actually put your trust in Jesus Christ. Like we don't believe that providentially that you're just here by accident. So today, would you believe that Jesus Christ died for you to take on the punishment of your sin? Would you believe this morning that not only did he die, but he rose again from the dead? Today, would you believe in Jesus in ways that you would call upon his name and trust that he will extend mercy and forgiveness to you? And as you trust in Jesus, would you join us in the work here at Red Village Church? with hopes that every year around this time, that as we gather together, we gather together not just to remember when Red Village Church was born, but more than that, that by his grace, that we might continue to celebrate that by his grace, our church still lives. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for all the sweet things you've done in 12 years here at Red Village Church. And uh, Lord, I do pray that you give us faith and trust and hope that we might continue uh, to do the works that before us. And Lord, we just continue to ask and pray that somehow, some way, for your glory, by your grace, through your providence, that you might continue to extend salvation through us to our beloved Madison and all the way to the ends of the earth. Lord, would you please continue to raise up and send out laborers from Red Village into your harvest. Lord, we want to be used by you. So please help us to that end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.